Welcome to the Erickson Covenant Podcast. We are so glad that you've joined us today. We confess that we don't have all the answers, but as a community, we seek to find and follow Jesus and to discover daily the life he has always wanted for us. We hope this message will be encouraging and will inspire you to take the next steps on your spiritual journey. If we can help you in any way, please connect with us. The easiest way is through our website at ericksoncovenant.ca. Let's get started. The Superman character has always been a thinly veiled Christ figure. You know, an all-powerful being who comes from another world, answering people's cries for help and doing for others what they couldn't do for themselves. Notice how they even finished that oil rig rescue scene with Superman floating in the water with arms outstretched in the shape of a cross. Movie makers love that kind of stuff. When the laments rise up, Clark Kent comes down. Well, today we're wrapping up our Love and Lent series with one final look at lament. We've covered a lot of ground during this teaching series, and I hope that we all have a greater sense of the importance and the practice of lament. Not just during a season like Lent, but something that we're able to incorporate into our lives. At the core, laments are cries for help. Really in its simplest terms. We're trapped on a burning offshore oil rig, and we put out a distress call. Or we're at a loss of what to do with our struggling teenager. And we cry out for intervention. We hear about yet another devastating loss of lives. We cry out for change. We discover a painful truth about our spouse. We fall back into a destructive pattern of sin in our own lives. Or we maybe explode in anger toward one of our kids and we say something hurtful. And we cry out for help. Eugene Peterson, in his introduction to his translation, um, his message translation of the Psalms, he says that our most basic human prayers can really be summarized in two categories. Help and thanks. Help and thanks. That's true, isn't it? I mean, just think about your own prayers. Think about the things that you most commonly ask God for or pray about, what you're most concerned about, and thanks and help probably cover the vast majority of those things, don't they? And if we're really honest, I think it's probably true that it's usually a lot more in the help category than even in the thanks category. And when we do give thanks, it's often related to the help that we got. And that's okay. We've got a lot of good biblical precedent for this. Asking God for help is all over the place. and we're, we're told to do it. From Psalm 22 we read, You, God, don't put off my rescue. Hurry and help me. Psalm 25 we read, Look at me and help me. I'm all alone and I'm in big trouble. Another Psalm we hear, Don't turn a deaf ear when I call you, God. If all I get from you is deafening silence, I better be off, I'd be better off in a black hole. I'm letting you know what I need, calling out for help. 
Laments cry for help. Help for us. Help for others. Help for God's broken world. Crying out to God for his intervention, for rescue, for change. And yet, when it comes to the very areas that we need the most help, the very areas where we maybe feel the most helpless, whether that's personal, whether that's corporate, whether that's as a church, whether that's at a global level or at a societal level, we often don't realize what kind of help we truly need. You know, we cry out to God to help us with our troubled kids, but then we often expect God to then act and help us in a particular way. We're looking for a certain answer. We demand God's attention in an area that we're struggling and sometimes fail to recognize the attention that he gives. We embark often on, our, on what you could call our own self-salvation projects. We try to fix ourselves. We try to correct something. We, we try to correct others. We try to cover over uh, things that we really need to just repent of, name, and, and pull it out in the open into the light. And then sometimes we'll, we'll get a program together, an idea together, or some sort of thing we think should be done, and we call in Jesus to legitimize it, to bless it. We already know what we need to do, God. Now, if you could just come and say it's okay, we'll get on with the thing that we know we need to do. Listen, when we cry out for help, God does hear us. This is one of the most profound, life-changing, mind-altering truths that we know from Scripture through the life of Christ. God hears us when we cry for help. He hears our laments. But the question is, will we let him answer it as he sees fit? Will we recognize his answer when he gives it? And, and this is so important, important for me personally, important for us, will we let Jesus meet us in our lament? In that place where we're crying out for help. Will we let him meet us and transform us in that encounter? This is the challenging question that is posed to us through the Palm Sunday story. This is Palm Sunday. And on Palm Sunday, we remember the uh, donkey ride that Jesus took into Jerusalem just the week before his crucifixion, where the crowds are shouting Hosanna and waving palm branches as he rides past. Now, I, I admit to you, I was actually a little stuck when I first thought about how am I going to finish this series on lament on Palm Sunday? Like, how do those things go together? Because it's easy to think of Palm Sunday, at least at first blush, as some sort of a praise fest, you know? Um, the crowds are roaring, and they're, they're doing the wave, and music is blasting, and they're selling corn dogs, you know, t-shirts. And there's no real hint of lament anywhere in this story, at least at first blush. By default, Jesus' triumphal entry feels a lot more like a rock concert that you want to get to, but the tickets are too expensive, and you end up being up in the nosebleed. That kind of event. As I sat with this story, I prayed, it o- prayed over it, and I walked and ran and thought about it and reflected. The Holy Spirit began to challenge 
my own perceptions of this event. Because just perhaps in this week before his death and resurrection, there's actually a lot more lament going on than we perhaps first perceive. Well, let's listen to this Palm Sunday story. I'm going to take this account from Luke's Gospel, which is the uh, third um, Gospel story in the New Testament. And we're going to read it from Luke 19, starting in verse 35. So, after Jesus' disciples had borrowed some guy's donkey, that's kind of the pre-story, they brought it to Jesus. Threw their cloaks on the colt and put Jesus on it. And as he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. They're quoting Psalm 118 there. Praise in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, Jesus replied, If they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. Actually, now that we hear him, I think Jesus himself was a little concerned it would turn into a rock concert. But do you see what I mean? Palm Sunday is a coat-throwing, you know, praise-giving Jesus party that lines this highway down the mountain toward Jerusalem. They're shouting quotes from the Psalms, which are cries of salvation and a declaration that this one that they're seeing come will be the Savior that they've been looking for. It's exciting stuff. From Psalm 118, a little larger context, it is, Lord, save us. That is, Hosanna. Lord, grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It's pretty awesome, but I don't see much lament in here. Do you? Except maybe the uptight Pharisees who are always lamenting what people are doing and what Jesus is doing. Certainly, in this case, lamenting the praise that Jesus is being offered. But, as we follow through the story, we see that there is more going on than we realized. We'll come back to this opening scene. But let's press on this story because what we are going to see that follows these loud cries of praise is a surprising turn, a surprising lament from Jesus himself. Right after shutting down the Pharisees, Jesus raises his eyes to the skyline. Verse 41, we read, As he approached Jerusalem, and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Did you hear that? As part of this exuberant praise march, Jesus weeps over the city of Jerusalem. Jesus brings the lament to the party. And not only does he weep, but he then prophesies 
over, over what is going to happen to Jerusalem because they missed the very thing, the very person who would have brought peace to them. Jesus sees what they can't see. He sees the ways that their attempts to save themselves was actually going to lead to their destruction. And Jesus' words about embankments and destruction, uh, that was all fulfilled within one generation. Rather than following the way of peace, the way of Jesus, the Jewish nation at the time insisted on pursuing a political agenda which brought them into armed conflict with Rome. And we know what happens when people came into armed conflict with Rome. They surrounded the city. And after crucifying hundreds and hundreds of young men, day after day after day, after a siege that that brought the brutality and horrifying reality to them of what they have done, they then destroyed the city and destroyed the temple in A.D. 70. It was a horrific, horrific end. Jesus saw it and he wept at its coming. Jesus warns of this judgment. He doesn't celebrate it. He doesn't smugly sneer at it. He weeps over the loss that is coming because the people missed what God was doing in him. Insisted on going their own way. I'm going to circle back to this in a moment. Now let's first finish the Palm Sunday parade. So after weeping over Jerusalem, after foretelling his demise, Jesus heads into the very heart of what is now a doomed city. He heads to the temple itself. And his reaction is infamous, right? He reacts to what he sees, not with praise, but with judgment. Verse 45, when Jesus entered the temple courts, he began to drive out those who were selling. It is written, he said to them, and then he quotes from two prophets, Isaiah and Jeremiah, my house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Jesus comes to the temple, the place that should have represented the heart of God, not only for his people, but for the world. And it had become a place of religious exclusion and power. And Jesus wasn't having any of it. He comes in judgment upon the temple, acting in what would have seemed like a very inappropriate manner, but also in a way that sparks his own demise. It's likely that his actions here at the temple is what finally gave the religious powers enough oomph to join hands with the political authorities to then conspire together and finish Jesus off. It only took a week, and he was condemned. Well, there you have it. That's, that's Palm Sunday, friends. That's the bigger story, the triumphal entry of Jesus, or perhaps the coming of the lamenting king. How does this help us in our Lenten journey of lament? In particular, how does this story challenge us as we cry out to Jesus and let him meet us as the Savior that we truly need? Well, this Palm Sunday story helps me meet Jesus in at least three particular ways, you could say, in each stage of this journey. And I'd like to simply share that with you. First, let's look back at the Jesus Parade. And we need to get this clear. When people were lined up giving praise to Jesus as their Savior, it's easy for us to think, 
oh, well, we, we know what that means because we know where this story's going. We know that Jesus is going to the cross. We know that he died. We know that he rose again, if, if you do believe that. You know, we, we, we kind of get that whole, they didn't know any of that. They had no idea what that really meant. In fact, what we discover in the larger story is that they had a lot of different preconceived notions of what salvation would look like, of what the Savior should look like, of what the Messiah, if they believed in a Messiah, not all of them did, should be and do. And whatever expectations they were holding, they were expecting this Jesus, this man on this donkey riding in, to do that, to be that, to fulfill the roles they held up as the answers they needed. There were a variety of ideologies at play among the Jews of Jesus' day, but no one, absolutely no one, including Jesus' closest followers, were looking for a Savior who would save them by being arrested and then mocked and then flogged and then condemned and then shamefully crucified naked for the watching world to see and then dying. Like, no one's looking for that because that's not a Savior, not in their books. That's not what they're looking for. They had firmly entrenched ideas of what salvation looked like. And rather than praising Jesus who had come to truly save them from what they really needed saving from, sin and death, not Rome, they were actually praising Jesus for being their Savior on their own terms. Their personal Savior, their national Savior, in all the ways they had already decided in advance they needed saving. We know this is true because all over the Gospels, from the closest uh, disciples to the hungry crowds, people who want Jesus to be their Savior on their own terms find that he won't do that for them. He challenges them. He pokes them and prods them, and people leave as a result. When he tells them where he's going to go and what he's going to do, even his closest disciples rebuke him and try to shut him down because they think, no, that's not what salvation looks like. He hears their cry for help. He sees their need for salvation, and he answers what they truly need, even though they didn't even realize it. In short, how this connects with us is that when we cry out for help, Jesus sees through our self-salvation strategies. He sees right through it. When he's riding down that you know, avenue and these people praise him, he knows what they think. He knows what they're expecting, and he knows he will not be meeting what they think they need. He'll be meeting their truest need. Jesus sees through our self-salvation strategies, and he rides on to become our true Savior. What does that mean for us? Well, we're invited to cry out to God. We're invited to lament We're told to bring our intercessions and our prayers. We're told to cry out for help to God. We see that modeled all over the place. We're to lament to God with an expectation of his help, of his rescue, of his salvation. We can look back and see that he's done it before, and we look forward and expect him to do it again. But even in that lament, we're being coaxed to trust, to trust him in his salvation way. We're, in fact, called to lament to Jesus and to see Jesus, to actually look to him and only to him for the salvation, not only that he will provide, but that he will be for us. It challenges me personally, you know, because when I cry out to God for help, 
I often am already committed to how I want him to respond. You know what I mean? When we lament to Jesus for rescue, I need to be willing to say, and God, I don't exactly know what that looks like. I, mean, I, might, oh, I might think I know what that looks like. And God says, hey, tell me, go ahead. You know, maybe I'll learn something. No, that's not what he says. But, you know, go ahead, share it. But am I willing to then say, but God, I don't know. You do. You are my salvation. You are the one who truly knows what we need, what I need. And I'm going to trust you in that. Jesus, even in answering our cries for help, leads us away from our own self-salvation strategies. All the ways we think we need saving, we need God to move, we need God. He leads us away from that. Because Jesus doesn't fit into our own preconceived notions of what salvation should look like, of what change should look like. He doesn't fit into what we think is best and just need Jesus to get on board with. No. Palm Sunday and then Passion Week as it follows and leads us to the cross reveals the truth of it. Our self-salvation strategies, they will fail. And we need Jesus to save us as only he can. And so, when we lament to Jesus, we commit ourselves into his trust. Many of my prayers of lament, which some of them I pray daily, are, are in the end, they are expressions of trust. Lord Jesus, I entrust this person to you. Lord Jesus, I entrust this situation to you. Come and rescue. We look to Jesus and remember that he is the one who saves. That's why so many biblical laments end with an affirmation of trust. You know, famously, Psalm 13, that lament psalm that we've read and sung during this series, ends with, but I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing the Lord's praise, for he has been good to me. Yes, Jesus sees through our self-salvation strategies. Then he coaxes us to trust. Okay, so from the roadside parade now to the Jerusalem overlook. See, Jesus not only sees through our self-salvation strategies, he also weeps over our self-salvation ideologies. As I've already said, Jesus foretold Jerusalem's coming destruction, particularly because they'd insisted on rebelling against Rome rather than following the way of Jesus. And all throughout the Gospels, many of the parables that Jesus told are offering explicit warning to the people of his day that unless they, they turned away from their, their self-salvation ideology and politics, they would fall into judgment. Many, 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 many of the parables are explicit warnings that they turn or be destroyed. And this is a large sweeping theme. We can't explore that today. But it really, doesn't cha- it really does challenge me personally. It challenges us personally when we consider our own laments, as well as when we lament the world at large, when we lament the things that are going on around us that are evil and awful. See, when Jesus sees the ways that we pursue our own salvation, particularly through political ideologies, he weeps over them because he knows that all of those attempts to make the world right through coercive means, through political power, always end in death and destruction. Always. Look at history. That is the way they go. Jesus looks over Jerusalem and his heart breaks for his people. 
people who were missing the very thing that God was doing, the very person who would lead them to peace and salvation, they had missed it. As we lament, Jesus compels us to repent, to turn away from our own ideologies, our own political commitments even, our own salvation plans, to rather turn to Jesus and look to Him who will lead us into salvation life. This is particularly a challenge to repent from any idea that we as Christians or even as a larger society should use force or coercion or an attempt to grab political power for what we would think is good ends. Whenever the church has grabbed power and tried to coerce change, they have abandoned Jesus and it's led to destruction. I invite you to look at history and to read it with that lens and you will see that it is true. But also, watching Jesus weep over Jerusalem reminds us of our vocation as priestly intercessors, which we explored last week. See, we're called to weep along with Jesus for the world, to stand shoulder to shoulder with Jesus as he looks out not only on Jerusalem, but on the larger world filled with people and politics and powers who are always seeking to save themselves, to force change, to to grab power for means that are completely severed from the person of Jesus Christ, the true Savior, the true King, the one who goes to the cross and gives up power. Weeping with Christ over the world, knowing that apart from Jesus, there is only destruction in store. For me, personally, it's as I lament to Jesus, as I cry out for his help, as I, 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 I cry out for help for myself or for others, Jesus challenges my own ideologies, my own politics, my own committed ideas to how God should work or how people should change or the way things should be, and he calls me to repent. Will I? Will you? Will we repent of the ways we've embraced ideas, politics, ideas that are are separate from who Jesus has revealed himself to be as the king who goes to the cross, lamenting all of these things? Well, Jesus sees through our self-salvation strategies, and he coaxes us to trust. Jesus weeps over our self-salvation ideologies, and he compels us to repent. And then he has one more stop, the temple core. When Jesus enters the temple, he rails against our self-salvation religion. This temple flipping Jesus is quite a thing, isn't it, right? It's something, kind of a famous image. There's been lots of conversation about what's going on here, what exactly is happening, and each of the gospel writers kind of have their own take on it. That's why it's beautiful that we have four different angles on this event. But they all come together to say this. The temple religion had become a self-salvation project where men had taken what God had, originally given them and were now using it for their own ends, completely severed from what God had designed. Famously, the temple priests were profiting enormously off the backs of the devout. Also, we see that God's intention for his people to be a light to the nations was being ignored, and Jesus arrives to render judgment on this house, railing against 
a rebellious religion and the ways that they and we seek to prop up our own comfort, exclude those who were meant to be included, to actually sever ourselves from God's plan altogether through religious means. happens all the time. And so, when we lament today, we find that Jesus comes, meets us in our lament, and He brings discipline to us, challenge to us. Jesus wants us to see ways that we've even tried to use the gifts He's given us, even some of the things we've done that have been meaningful to us or in worship or prayer or service in the church, but we've turned them somehow to serve our own comfort or to manipulate what we think would at least manipulate a response from him or even to manage people that we're uncomfortable with. All the ways religion has been used to hurt people, to separate people, to actually obscure the true God. Jesus rails against that. And he disciplines us as his people when he meets us in our lament. Because we discover that we ourselves have adopted certain things that are actually against what Jesus is doing. Certain frameworks, certain ways of thinking, certain ways of categorizing people. We've allowed religious ideas, religious practices even, to not only obscure our vision of people, but actually lead us away from God. And so when Jesus meets us on our mind, it's, it's such a beautiful opportunity because he's able to bring discipline to our hearts and our minds, to our church. He's able to meet us on our mat and say, okay, are you ready to hear what I really have going on? Are you ready to hear what I really want to do? Are you ready to hear what I really have planned for the world? Jesus meets us in our lament. And he calls us to follow him. Will we let him? Will we let him come in and correct us? One of the biggest challenges in any kind of prayer is that we sit open-handed and allow God to meet us and then hear us, and then actually respond to us. And he affirms us, and he reminds us of who we are, and he calls out our gifts, and he provides us direction, all those good things that we love, but he also disciplines us, corrects us, rebukes us. I've been spending a lot of time this month in the book of Hebrews, and I'm reminded in there that Discipline's a good thing. Discipline's a sign of God's care and love for us as his children. Good parents discipline their kids, and God disciplines the ones he loves. So when we receive this, it's also a sign of Christ's love for us, meeting us in our lament, but correcting us, disciplining us, helping us grow. Jesus rails against our self-salvation religion and calls us to follow him. Where? Well, Ultimately, to the cross. We're here on Palm Sunday. We now are beginning Passion Week. And Jesus is leading us to follow him down that road, to follow him over these next days, over this week ahead, to follow him to the cross. And our invitation as we lament to him, as we lament with him, is that we would not only meet him in his lament, but we would follow him forward into the week ahead. And I invite you this week, Passion Week, to take these days as days where Jesus is inviting you to join him in 
his lament, in his cries, but also in your own. To join together and lament, yes, the trouble that we've been experiencing, the trouble that is going on around us, the burdens we see in the lives of our own brothers and sisters, or at a larger scale, those who are suffering, to bring those with them, but to, to look at Jesus and to follow him as he walks through the crowds to the cross and becomes the only salvation that we need. Jesus invites us to lament to him so that as we do, we're transformed in that encounter. It doesn't mean that everything is answered nicely and neatly and at the end of the day, everything's tied up with a bow and everything's great. That's not what it means. It means we follow him, trusting that he is our only salvation, repenting from all the ways we've tried to design that on our own and following him where he leads, which ultimately is to the cross, to the place of powerlessness, the place of love, the place where he gave himself up for all, And then, gloriously through that, to the resurrection life that he's accomplished for us and promised to us all. Let's close in prayer. Lord Jesus, I am so thankful that you are our lamenting king, that you have called us to follow you. And that call to follow you isn't something where you just um, allow us to continue sort of thinking that it's this other thing that saves us or it's this other thing that will be the answer, but rather you get our attention. You coax us to trust you. You compel us to repent and turn away from those things that are false. And you call us to follow. And so, Jesus, we do that today. I pray very specifically that over this next week, Passion Week, Lord Jesus, that we as your people, that we as the Erickson Covenant Church, whether we are committed followers of you, Jesus, or whether we're just exploring faith, whether we're just wondering who you are, that, Lord Jesus, you would meet us and we would follow you this week. We would walk these steps with you to the cross, to Good Friday, Holy Saturday, and Resurrection Sunday, looking to you, our only Savior. We pray this in your name. Amen. Thanks for listening in today. We hope you feel encouraged and challenged. If you know someone who would benefit from what you have heard today, please share this podcast. For more information, or if you have questions, you can connect with us through our website, ericksoncovenant.ca. You can also find us on Facebook by searching for Erickson Covenant Church.